As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will abide forever. You may be seated. Well, it's been a little while since um, I've been up here and preaching out of Luke. Last time I was here, it was a, a sermon on, on the eldership. Um, but just a, a big picture reminder of, of the way that Luke has been divided and the things that have been happening um, ever since back in Luke 9.51. This journey of Jesus has begun. This journey toward Jerusalem. A journey that he has explained is going to end in his rejection and his death and in his resurrection. And while we've uh, seen certain hints and signs along the way, actually all the way back from the very beginning when Jesus was an infant being brought to the temple, um, opposition is going to come. Uh, Rejection is going to build. And uh, most recently, as we were in chapter 11, we saw Jesus describing um, what we know from the other Gospels as the condition of that generation, um, afflicted by evil spirits. But that Jesus has come as one who is stronger than the strong man who has bound his people and kept his spoil, and that he's going to be delivering them. But not before the rejection. And we see more and more clearly uh, the indications that um, despite the crowds that have been gathering, despite the attention that Jesus has been getting, um, not all is well with his people. Now, um, Verse 27 links what we're about to read today, which um, there are a lot of um, questions in the texts that we're looking at this morning, um, some, some difficulties, but links everything that Jesus is about to say as he goes forward in this portion of his teaching with all the things that he had said. Verse 27, as he said these things. And so this outburst, this rather warm, um, sort of affectionate outburst that we hear from the crowd um, Luke leads us to believe has some sort of connection with what has just preceded it. 
um, his discussion of the evil spirits, his discussion of the strong man and of the stronger man. Um, kind of maybe a, a surprising response to that discussion. The woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. First thing I want to note, because these are piling up in Luke, and Luke's not going to stop doing this, his emphasis on the witnesses to Christ's greatness so frequently being women. So here this woman shouts out and shouts out this this blessing upon Jesus' mother. Um, But what does the saying mean exactly? Um, It's not an uncommon expression back in that day to um, praise someone's mother. And really, um, it's a statement that's born out of admiration and appreciation for, for that person. So she's saying something about Christ himself, something along the lines of, my, shouldn't your mother be proud to, to be your mother? Um, but still we have the question, how is this exactly connected with, with what is being said? Um, could be generally, as she's listening to his teaching and hearing his insight into the situation in the nation, the spiritual sort of temperature of the people and appreciating that wisdom, it could be even more specifically that she's been given even further insight and recognizes that he's speaking of himself as the strong man, the one who has come to despoil the enemy. But in any case, it's an admiration expressed for him along the lines of statements we've seen so far. All of that to be said, however, it does say something about Jesus' mother. A lot of discussion over the centuries as to this passage. Um, some people take uh, Jesus' response as almost saying, no, 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 my mother's not blessed. It's this person instead. Um, or on the other hand, um, the, blessing, the blessing of Mary being emphasized here. Um, I think it's important for us to know to understand this expression in the Gospel of Luke as actually being a fulfillment of a prophecy that's already been made in the Gospel of Luke. If you think way back to a year ago, when we were talking about Gabriel coming and visiting Mary and making his announcement as to what was going to happen. And then as Mary herself responds, and then as Elizabeth responds, and as others respond to Mary, remember that Mary understood that as a result of what was happening to her, she said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we, we see it beginning to happen here, even in Jesus' lifetime still, even in, in Mary's lifetime. This woman is blessed. And we see from Jesus' response that this statement is true as far as it went. Jesus' reply to the saying, though, shows that there's, there's more to the story. Um, I won't go into all the grammar here, but this isn't a contradiction. This isn't Jesus saying, no, that's not true. This is true instead. Um, Think of it more along the lines of, again, true as far as it goes, but let me give you some further qualification. And this is what he says in verse 28 as he responds to this blessing upon his mother. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, why does Jesus respond this way? I suppose it's possible... um, that one could hear this statement, this blessing made by this woman, especially now us reading it all these years later, and get the implication 
that Mary was blessed because of the physical, maternal, familial relationship that this woman describes. Because it was her womb that gave life to his physical body. It was her breast that nursed him and sustained him in that life. Jesus here, without denying the truth of his mother's blessing, denies the potential implication that that's the cause of Mary's blessing. Now, he's said things like this already in response to his family in the Gospel of Luke. Um, just a, a number of chapters earlier in Luke 8.20, you remember he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he said, he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So again, <clears throat> it was this cause of blessing Hearing and doing the word of God that also, if we look back to the early account in Luke, happened to be true of his mother as well. Um, Because of her faith, because of her belief, because of her receiving the word of God, and because of her acting upon it. With respect to Mary's faith, we have the testimony of Elizabeth in chapter 145. Remember, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And we see in Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary expressed her faith in the promise of God. Mary also expressed her willingness to be used by God and to obey God in whatever way God was calling her to be used. And so, there's no denial of the blessing upon Mary in Jesus' words, there's just a clarification as to the cause of that blessing. And here's the good news for us about that clarification. The good news for us about this being the cause of Mary's blessing is that this same blessing is available to anyone. Um, If the blessing of Mary were based solely on her maternal relationship to Jesus, then she would be the only one who is able to enjoy that. But it is others, anyone, in that same position as Mary was, who hear the word of God and who keep it, that are subject to being blessed in the way that Jesus is speaking of here. So as it is, others too are able to be blessed in this same way, by this same route, by hearing and keeping the word of God. This is what will make you blessed. This is what will make you ultimately happy. Hearing and keeping the word of God. It was the path for those who were first hearing Jesus and his teaching. It is the path also for those now reading these words of Jesus. Now I ask, consider for yourself, is is this the path that you have in your mind? of If I really want to truly be blessed in my life, I'm going to hear the word of God and I'm going to keep it. Is this something that that you do or you value or emphasize at all in your life? And for those of you who would answer, yes, of course, as a believer in Christ, hearing and doing the word is is the the way that I seek to be blessed in life. For those of you, I, I would follow up with a further question. As you look at your time, as you look at your energies, as you look at your your anxieties, as you look at all of the things in which you engage... Is hearing and keeping the word the primary path 
that you're choosing to blessing? Are there other competitors to this? Other things that you're hearing? Other things that you're seeking to keep that maybe you're even in competition with the word of God? Um, Are you hearing and keeping primarily your friend's advice to you? Are you hearing and keeping primarily um, the reports of the news programs? Are you hearing and keeping primarily the financial advice you're getting from the programs you listen to? What are you really focusing your attention upon and you're seeking God's blessing? And even if we would say, I'm, I'm seeking to be blessed by Christ, this is the way I know that we're to be blessed, I would ask, what other substitutes for hearing and keeping the word of God are you trying? There are those that will, will wear a cross almost as if they've um, found a good luck charm or will just sort of claim the name of Christ thinking that simply by identifying with him, I've done everything that I need to do. Or maybe even um, reading your Bible, but doing it as if just going through the motions is scoring you points of blessing. Listening and hearing the word of God is something actively that we have to be pouring ourselves into. Jesus says that the one who is hearing the word And keeping the word is blessed. Now, he said things like this before as well. You might remember back chapter 6. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then he gives the illustration. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had not been well built. And by contrast, he says, but the one who hears, again, the contrast is not between the one who hears and the one who doesn't hear. It's the one who hears and the one who hears but does not do them. What's the end of that man? Man is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. So prominent in the teaching of Jesus is this reminder that it is not enough to just have the word playing in your presence. It's something with which you must engage and receive. And it is something which you must strive to keep. And as Jesus says here, this hearing the word and this keeping the word, this is the way of true blessing. Doing what Christ says. It really is. Do it. Now as we go into verse 29, the question's raised, well, how many of the people in, in Jesus' day and in Jesus' context seem to be taking this approach? How many of them really are hearing the word and keeping it. And at first blush, as we look at verse 29, it looks like the signs might be promising. It says, when the crowds were increasing. Again, all the way through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has this sort of complicated relationship with the crowds. Um, sometimes they seem to be truly devoted to what he's doing. Um, other times it seems to be more of a mixed response. Now here the crowds are increasing, so we would be tempted to think, oh, here it is, they're coming to hear him. But Jesus gives a rather blunt assessment of what's happening that's different than what we might expect on the surface. It's not a pleasant one. He says, this generation is an evil generation. 
Again, something else that's not a surprise to us if we've been paying attention to what's been said in Luke all the way back in chapter 6. He asked, what do I compare this generation to? He said, it's like children sitting in the marketplace who say to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. His explanation is, John came in one style, in one mode, as an ascetic out in the wilderness and you rejected him. And so now I come, and I come in a different mode, and I come in a different way, so that I'm even accused of partying. And still, even though that's a different, different way of approaching it, the people again say, well, we'll reject him as well. Jesus is saying essentially, no matter how the prophets and how the Messiah have come at you in this generation, nothing is good enough for you to accept them. So he had seen this tendency and proclaimed this tendency in this generation all along. But how now in this passage, in this particular moment, was this evil of this generation being manifested? Well, he follows up that statement by saying, it seeks for a sign. Oh, again, seeking for a sign is something that might at first blush strike us as, as something admirable. Um, how, how is it that seeking a, a sign as a demonstration and a confirmation of, of the word of God, um, how can that be a manifestation of a generation's Wickedness. I mean, after all, if we look at the ministry of Christ up to this point, he's been giving all kinds of signs um, and expressly doing them for that purpose so that people would see and give glory to God and recognize the legitimacy of the word that he was proclaiming. And as we look forward to the rest of the gospel, he's not going to stop doing that. He's going to continue doing these signs. So why would he say that this generation is wicked and Right on the tail end of that, say it seeks for a sign. For immediate context, we can look back to what Tyler was talking about a few weeks ago, and we see that part of the motives of some of the people were seeking a sign in order to test him, in order to to trick him, in order to pin him down. Um, This doesn't seem to be seeking a sign so that, hey, well, let's see if this is really real, but let's ask him for a sign, and let's ask him for another sign until he finally can't deliver, and then we'll know that he's not legitimate then we'll know that he hasn't really been bringing the word of God to us. Probably in connection with this tendency that Jesus is saying this here. But I think there's more to it than that. To be still seeking a sign at this point in Jesus' ministry, after so many and so clear signs had been given, demonstrated that the, the problem wasn't really with the signs. The problem was, again, with the people, with their wickedness. And their wickedness that particularly was manifesting itself in unbelief of the word of God. Now, it's important for us to note this word of Jesus is not a rebuke um, against accepting claims, except on blind faith with no evidence. What it is, it's a rebuke against refusing to acknowledge the truth, no matter what evidence has been presented. And this seems to be the situation in which this generation was. No matter how much Jesus did, no matter how much and how differently John had done, they were not going to believe and they were constantly going to be asking for just one more sign so that we can know for sure. And Jesus said for for those who are asking for this and in this way and for this reason, he wasn't going to play that game. He wasn't going to give them more or anything of a different kind than what he had already given them. As he said, no sign will be given 
to it, to this generation, except for the sign of Jonah. Now here's our our first um, interpretive question here. What is it that Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to give this generation the sign of Jonah? There really isn't in, in this passage a great deal to go on from just this brief version that Luke relates. Um, and I suppose that this, this saying was somewhat intentionally enigmatic at the time. Um, he wasn't explaining exactly what he meant to the people when he said this. Um, there's a little more added here in verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now when we compare the Gospels, we see that Matthew in particular is one who unpacks this and adds more to what Jesus said. And there's a, a statement about just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. And so it seems like somewhat veiled in this form, but something that the people could look back to after the claim was later made and say, oh, this is what he was talking about, is that Jesus would follow the pattern of Jonah in his suffering and his humiliation and in his death, which Jonah symbolizes, but also in his resurrection. And then, following Jonah's resurrection, Jonah's escape from the whale, as it were, that the message would be proclaimed in clarity. This is what we'll see after Jesus' resurrection in Luke's gospel. But whatever the meaning, whatever the specific meaning of the sign of Jonah, it's clear that Jesus is pointing to himself as the sign. Something else we've seen early on. Again, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple and Simeon, who has been waiting his entire life to see the Messiah, takes him in his arms, blesses God, speaks to the parents. One of the things that we said then was foreshadowed, And now was becoming more and more clear was his statement. He is appointed for a sign that will be opposed by many. And here we see this prophecy of Simeon coming more and more to fruition. This generation is the one that's going to oppose this sign. And to this generation, as Jesus says, he's going to be a sign of condemnation. The reverse side of blessing. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps the word of God condemned and cursed is the one who rejects the word of God and rejects all of the signs that have been given and ultimately who reject the final sign of God's favor and grace and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus iterates their condemnation and then he highlights that condemnation and they're deserving of that condemnation by these comparisons. So verse 31, he begins with the comparison of the queen of the south. She'll rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, we heard this in our first scripture reading about the queen of Sheba who heard the word about Solomon and particularly the word about Solomon and his connection with the Lord and what the Lord had done for his people and all that the Lord had blessed Solomon with for the benefit of his people. And what had she done? Well, she had gotten up and she had left her place and left her kingdom and took this arduous journey and visited Solomon to see him. Well, what does that have to do with this generation? First of all, notice that this is again 
a woman to whom Luke is pointing, to whom Jesus is pointing, as one who is faithfully responding to the word of God. And what's more, a woman who is a Gentile. Another thing that keeps popping up in Luke as these outsiders of every sort are the ones that are the most attracted to Christ and his ministry. Well, again, Jesus says, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and then a super bold statement. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying to these people that the word that he's saying ought to be heard, the word of God that he's bringing, the word that he's um, bringing to be kept, the word that Christ is bringing to the people right then is greater than the wisdom of Solomon. The wisest man, Scripture tells us, who to that point had ever lived. And not only that, their position isn't in being in a distant land and hearing this from afar. Here Jesus is right in their midst. They don't have to go anywhere. They just have to open their ears and they have to open their hearts and they have to listen. But they're not. They'll be condemned by a further example. Jesus mentions the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, again, something greater than Jonah is here. It would have been a really bold statement to say something greater than the wisdom of Solomon is going on. A bold statement to say that somebody greater than Jonah, a representative of the prophetic tradition, is going on. He's combined these two together and basically said, everything that has come before, be it wisdom, be it prophecy, what's happening now in my ministry is greater. And what response am I getting? Well, show us another sign. There is no repentance. There is no eager seeking after his word. What difference does this make for us? Why is this recorded for us? Well, some things may have changed in between that context and ours, but one thing has not. And that is Jesus is still the greatest source and ground and foundation of wisdom that the world has ever seen or heard from. And secondly, that his preaching, his word, his gospel that he proclaimed is more powerful than any word that has been proclaimed or preached before. And consider where we're at. We're not looking forward wondering, hmm, I wonder what other signs are going to be worked. I wonder what the sign of Jonah really is. All of the things to which Jesus has pointed have been accomplished. Jesus has been crucified and Jesus has been raised. Just like he compared himself to Jonah. Everything that Jesus would subsequently do through the church, we read about in Luke's second volume and the, the book of Acts. We see that Christ did not end with his death. His life, his influence, his power, his word Turn the world upside down from that point. Our vantage point, again, sometimes we think, oh, if we had only been there, if we had only seen what those people see, were able to see, uh, how much stronger would our faith be? The scripture is clear that we have more. We have it complete. We have the full story as to what the sign of Jonah and how Jesus is a sign. 
One thing that we have is even we can look back at the historical and temporal judgment that was already accomplished on that generation. Jesus, just as Jesus said it would be. We're in the position now. We're in the Word, in the Scriptures, in the Bible. We have the full witness to Christ. We have here everything we need to hear and to keep the Word of God. And what we've discovered in these scriptures, the fullness of the word that Jesus has brought is not just the word that he brings, it's the word about him. It's concerning himself. The news about Jesus Christ is that word that brings blessing to those who hear it and keep it. It is that word that brings condemnation to those who reject it, who harden their hearts against it and refuse to listen to it. And so, I say, living in our, in our day with all of the access we have to all of these things, if you're still looking for a sign, it's not because you don't have enough information. Scripture tells us that if we're continuing to reject Christ after what we've been given, it's because we're refusing willfully to believe the perfectly sufficient sign that has already been revealed. But there's instruction and correction here for those of us also who have believed in Christ. Especially as we think about um, the Queen of Sheba and the lifeline that we have to God through his word and through Christ and the way that we're called to respond to that continually in seeking it, hearing it, listening to it, keeping it, putting it into practice. We have to ask ourselves, how far... And to how much trouble are we willing to go to be sure that we are continuously exposed to and drinking in what Christ has to say? What is your Bible reading like at home? How much of your own time, how much of your own energy are devoted to this end, seeking Christ, hearing his word, putting it into practice in comparison with other, with other things? The word of Christ is worth hearing. The word of Christ is life itself. And we need to be continually striving to be conformed to look more and more like a people that truly believes that. Secondly, what about for for believers, those in Christ, what about the lesson from Nineveh? Well, here's the question I think that's raised by this. What ways do you find to evade the repentance that Christ's word calls forth from you when you encounter it? Um, I don't suppose there are too many of us who are are bold enough just to flatly refuse and say, I see what Christ is saying and I've just decided I'm not going to do it. That's usually not our style. Usually it's redefining or finding an excuse of some sort, or maybe just not going too close to certain passages that say things that would require us to change in some way. This warning was given to this generation that was listening to Christ firsthand. This warning is recorded for us to be continued, to continue to be reminded. Um, We need to be responsive to God's word. We need to be seeking what it says and be seeking to conform our life and repentance as it calls us. This again, this, this is the path to the blessing that Jesus mentioned in the first section we looked at this morning. 
All right, the final portion of, of the passage this morning um, ends with um, a collection of parables about lamps and eyes and light. And, and here what Jesus says again presents some interpretive questions. Uh, how are we to understand what's represented by what exactly? He, he begins by saying, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar and under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Looking over the whole of Scripture, um, and especially looking over um, the use of such language in Luke, it seems that this really this is a picture, again, of the teaching and the truth that Jesus has brought. And in fitting with, he, with what he's just said to this generation, this light has been placed on a stand at his time, clearly presented to the nation as a whole. But again, if there's any problem with the enlightenment of the people in the room, it's not the fault of the lamp. Rather, it could only be a problem with the way the light is being received. And Jesus explains this further. Verse 34, he said, Your eye is the lamp of your body. This causes us a little bit of trouble. What, what does this mean exactly? Um, well, think of it this way. It's by and through your eye that the light that's out there, that surrounds you, that's shining just as brightly whether you see it or not, it's through your eye that that light actually becomes useful to you, makes its way into your perception, makes its way into your consciousness. It's your eye alone that renders the light around you into something that's useful for the entire rest of your body so that you know where to put your hands to use them, that you know where to move your legs to avoid walking off a cliff, where to place your feet so that you can avoid stepping on that Lego, which is difficult in the middle of the night. So the condition of our eyes is pretty important for our whole bodies, for everything else that we need to do, which is what Jesus says next. He says, when your eye is healthy, when your eye is actually letting the light in like it's supposed to, the whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Of course, again, physically speaking, the usefulness of the light around us depends upon the health of our eye. But Jesus is here talking about our spiritual sight. He's talking in large part about the same thing, again, that he's already been speaking of. Men have received all of the signs that they need. The truth is out there proclaimed as clearly as it needs to be. The truth is shining upon every person who encounters the gospel. But if our spiritual sight is deficient, then the brightness of the light won't matter. If our spiritual eyesight is bad, literally Jesus says, if your eye is evil, same word that he used to describe that generation, then no amount of increased light is going to fix a problem. Now is Jesus saying this then as a flat out condemnation, um, a hopeless statement to drive the people to desperation? No. Look at what he says in 35. It seems that Jesus is giving people hope for this condition to be reversed. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. It does seem that there is something that can be done about the poor health of the spiritual eye. What would that be? Well, if we're talking about someone who's outside of Christ and is having difficulty accepting the claims of Christ, I would direct them to that, the prayer that we read in the Gospel of John, the prayer for our spiritual sight to be healed, as the father of the demon-possessed boy said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
The dimness, the darkness, and the sickness, and the unhealthiness of our eye that prevents us from seeing the truth of the gospel is something that God in his power and his providence and his kindness is able and willing to fix. And again, for us, for those whom he has done so already, those of us who has enabled to see the light of the gospel, we, I think, need to be continually aware of this same issue of the health of our eyes. We need to be aware of the kinds of things that can dim our vision to the clearer light of God's word. And there really are, there are so many. There is so much darkness. There is so much confusion around us. And so much evidence that the, the light is not penetrating the eyes of some even professing Christians. You may have read this week, um, a recent poll said that 46% of self-described evangelicals say that sexual relationships outside of marriage are perfectly appropriate, that there's no problem what, whatsoever with them. Believers, you have to ask yourselves and you have to examine yourselves. What factors might be keeping you from seeing clearly the light that is clearly revealed oftentimes it is some pet sin like this that we'd rather not let go sometimes it's it's a group um, by which we want to be accepted or in which we want to fit in that's changing altering diminishing our vision as to what the word of god says what do we do in those circumstances how do we ask god to help us put those encumbrances aside as well Well, as we have asked him from going from blindness to sight, we continue to ask him for healthier eyes. We see Paul praying this way for the Ephesian audience. And Ephesians 1.6 talks about his prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So again, Paul speaking to those who have already named the name of Christ recognizes there's an, there's an increase in the health of our vision that needs to take place. And it's an increase that can only take place as we pray for it and as we ask God for it and as God works in us by his spirit to clarify our vision in that way. And why should we long for this? Well, in verse 36 Jesus, I think, reiterates and unpacks and gives us more detail about what this blessing is that comes to those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. A deeper description of the blessing that Jesus mentions in response to the woman's exclamation. And other, a parallel description of the blessing that comes to the one who hears the, the word and does it in the parable of the house that weathers the storms of life. When you hear and you keep the word of God, the word that Christ proclaimed at the first, the word that Christ caused to be proclaimed even more broadly, and permanently and scripturated in the scriptures that we have in the Bible that we have. When you hear that and keep that, does that mean that you're blessed in such a way that all of your troubles are over? No, of course not. Will storms still come? If we look at the parable, yes. Will sometimes we still walk through the valley of deep darkness? Yes. What's the blessing then? 
The blessing is this. That when the storms come, that when the darkness sets in, the blessing is that you'll be able to walk through these periods of darkness with your eyes fixed on the infallible, settled, clear truth of Christ. And that, as you're able to do so, according to his own promise, you will always be guided by right paths into security, into safety. Even if it's through darkness, even if it's through storms, this is what awaits us on the other side is ultimate peace. And so I urge you, people of God, be people who are always seeking to hear more of the word of God. Be people who are always striving to see the light more clearly and be a people that's characterized by an ever striving to keep the word more fully. This is the path Jesus has presented to us as the path to the fullest possible blessing. Let's pray.